I'm Dana Lloyd. Welcome to Soul Sister Conversations, the podcast, where you will be inspired and empowered to connect more deeply with your authentic self as we explore topics of personal development, leadership, and spirituality. Your journey to your most authentic self starts right now. Do you want a fulfilling job? Are you between jobs? Do you wish you made more money? Today, I chat with Claudia Miller, who is a rock star career coach. We have a great conversation around how to land your dream job, how to negotiate a raise, and loads of tips for not only finding a job, but building a career. Have you always wanted your own personal coach? Well, now you can have one. Sign up for my weekly newsletter called Coach in Your Inbox, where I give you an inspirational message along with a coaching question for the week. Plus, you'll always be up to date with who is on the podcast and get my latest book recommendation. I value my relationships and community with others. So let's start a relationship. Go to DanaLloydLeadership.com to sign up. Claudia Miller, welcome to Soul Sister Conversations. Hi, Dana. I'm so happy to be here, especially about the topics we'll be talking about today. Yes. Well, I think career advice is always a timely topic because who doesn't want um, to have a job that is fulfilling? Um, and people are always seems to be in transition, whether they're, they're new graduates or maybe someone gets laid off or they're trying to get a promotion. So I think this will be an interesting um, conversation for people looking for help on that. So you are a sought after career coach who helps people land fulfilling jobs. And I love that word fulfilling. Um, and because of your client's success, you have been featured in Forbes, MSNBC, and Business Insider, to name a few. But let's back up a little bit. Before you became a career coach, you started your career like so many people, an entry-level job that you didn't really love and barely making any money. So I'm curious, um, what did you begin to learn or what began to bubble up inside of you when you had that experience as an entry-level employee? Yeah, well, one thing I realized is... <laughs> Getting going to college, getting good grades, doing the internships, and every doing everything everyone tells you to do is not going to be enough to get you ahead in your career. And I found I experienced that because I did a lot of this work uh, while I was in college, and I was just expecting a flood of interviews coming in. And unfortunately, I only had one interview, and thankfully they offered me the job. But I knew that there was a piece missing that. Just checking off all the boxes and what we're told isn't going to be enough to get ahead, me, get ahead in my career. And therefore, it really embarked on this journey of figuring out how do I actually get ahead in my career? How do others do it? How are they able to be successful, get to six figures while still in their 20s? They're able to get promoted you know, every year or every two years. How are they fast-tracking their career? And it took me quite some time to figure it out and really crack the code. But when I start, started seeing a lot of immense... Um, result is when I started my business as a virtual admin and started using a lot of the business principles in my career. And that's when my career just took off. I okay. was, yeah, I, I yeah. just pivoted into different industries from finance to education to um, healthcare in the hospital space and then healthcare in the private space. And every single time getting at least a $30,000 salary increase and getting handpicked by the CEO for special projects. So it begs the next question. How did you do that? Because you, you mentioned the <laughs> word business principles and you said you took you a while to kind of crack the code. And you but you began to study people to see those that had sort of fast track careers or uh, fulfilling jobs and to see if they had any anything in common. And what did you find out? 
Well, first, I mean, I came from humble beginnings, so I didn't have a network. I'm the first one in my family to graduate with like a high school degree, let alone a bachelor's and a master's degree. So I I thought that you had to come from this very Ivy League pedigree. You need to have network and family. And those are things that I didn't have at the time. And I was really hoping and praying that that's not what I needed to get ahead in my career. So it was a relief to when I did reach out to people that were doing really great in the career. And even those people that get featured in Business Insider, you know, how 25-year-old is making over six figures and here's how she did it. I reached out to those people and what I found relief is that a lot of them didn't have this pedigree background, didn't have, didn't come from Ivy League degrees, didn't come from a wealthy family. And that's when at least it put a lot of my fears at ease to say, if they can do it, I can do it. I just need to learn the strategy. And that's what I really focus on figuring out what worked, what didn't work. Myself being the test subject, testing it out while I was in interviews and doing it in my own personal jobs and like I said, what really cracked the code is when I started using business principles in my career that it really changed everything. And what were those business principles? So um, when you think about, and I know you hear like, take your career as if it's a business, but if you've never owned a business, you're like, well, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but True. What that, what that translates to is when you're working on your resume or your LinkedIn profile, that's your marketing. That's your, you know, if you're a marketer, that's like your landing page. You need to capture the attention of someone in a few seconds. And specifically within a resume, you have anywhere between six to eight seconds to capture the attention of a recruiter, hoping that that'll be enough time for them to say, I want to bring them in for an interview, just like it is for businesses. Like, you know, you have to have your branding on point. You need to have your copywriting. You need to have your tagline, your, like all these things is what I started applying a lot of these marketing principles in my career. So that's how I started leading and updating my resumes. Like what does the reader really care about? What is really going to capture the attention? What's going to make me stand out from the competition? Cause I'm always competing with other applicants and on average for every job posting you see out there, there's about 250 people applying to that job. So mm. always keeping that in mind. And that's just kind of like a very, um, quick example of how to use business principles into your career. Hmm. Well, a couple of the things that you had noted is it just even with respect to resume writing, you said that these people who were um, more accomplished, got better jobs, actually had polished, optimized resumes. They weren't just sending out resumes and hoping for a response. And one of the things you talk about is is polishing and optimizing it to pass through any company's applicant tracking system. And I think this is what a lot of people may not realize that some organizations have. Can you speak to that a little bit and how you um, polish that resume so that it at least gets through the first round? Mm -hmm. So I always say that your resume is going to be read or seen by three people. And I, when I say three people, I'm using quotation marks because the first person in quotations that's going to really vet out your resume is the applicant tracking system. And that's an algorithm that most companies have on their website or if you go on Indeed and LinkedIn, if you're applying to jobs on LinkedIn, LinkedIn has its own ATS system embedded into it. And what that is, is it's an algorithm. And what it's looking for is keywords. The more keywords you have, the higher score you get. And it's a score between zero and 100. 100 meaning you're the perfect fit for this job posting. You have all the right keywords. Um, and as applicants start applying, it starts ranking every single person. 
And to that example I gave before that stat that there's about 250 applicants, it'll give the top applicant and it'll give the bottom 250th applicant. So you want to make sure you have all the right keywords in your resume to make sure that the applicant tracking system is able to pick it up and say, all right, it looks like Dana does have a lot of these keywords. She has a lot of this experience, which is matches the job posting. I'm going to rank her at a 95, whereas Claudia doesn't have as many. So we're going to rank her at 60th percent. So when recruiters are trying to figure out, you know, what are the top five to seven people we want to bring in for the interview? They start with the top 20 resumes in their applicant tracking system because they already scored the highest. They have the keywords. So they usually pull the top 20 resumes. And I mean, a quick vetting system that I've heard a lot from recruiters is if they don't submit a cover letter, I toss it out because if if it doesn't have a uh, cover cover letter. letter. Yeah, Mm. because they're trying to. They're trying to narrow 250 resumes into top five or seven. They're they're not doesn't mean they're going to read it. They just make the assumption that that candidate isn't as well as interested in this job versus the candidate did submit a cover letter and spent time writing a cover letter. Which for me, I love and hate cover letters because if you're not going to read it, why make the candidate? <laughs> why make it waste do it? time? But. Um, it, that is kind of like a vetting source that they use. Not all of them, but I've heard a lot from recruiters where they'll say, yeah, if they don't submit a cover, I just toss out their resume. And then what it's left standing is if I don't see a connection on why they're a good fit, maybe you're a marketer, you're, you're a marketing manager and you're interested in a sales job. I'm not seeing the connection. I'm going to toss out your resume. They're not going to spend time trying to find the transferable skills and connect the dots and what, why your marketing background makes you a great salesperson. If you can't communicate that, they're not going to do that. That's your job as a job seeker. Hence, mm. that's what you want your resume to do. And that's really how they start identifying how they use the applicant tracking system, ATS algorithm, in order to find the top candidates to apply. And kind of to that point, like that's the first person, you know, which is that algorithm, which is computer. The second one needs to make sure that it captures the HRs whoever the human resources or whoever the recruiter's attention enough to say, yes, Dana has all the right skill sets. Let's bring her in for the interview. And then the third reader is going to be that probably the hiring manager that's going to get access to your resume before the interview. Hmm. I think it's really interesting. People need to be educated applicants, really, and to recognize that they need to get these keywords in that um, resume or the cover letter. Because I've heard people say, you know, I've applied and I thought it was a really great fit, but I didn't get a call back. And they're frustrated thinking they're not good enough for the job. Mm-hmm. But the, it, it, it it's a little bit of a game, is it not? <laughs> yeah, just because you're a marketing game. Yeah. yeah, you may be a great fit, and you're still not going to get an interview. And I've had a lot of clients that when they come to me, they already, you know, they lost their confidence. They feel like they, maybe they're not as yeah. good as they think they yeah. are. And they're like, well, maybe I don't even, I shouldn't even be in my role because I, I can't even get jobs for just my level, let alone the, you know, the level above where I'm interested in moving my career towards. But it's, once you know how to have these systems work in your favor, then it's up to you and how you pull these levers to make it work on what you want to go after, the interviews you want to get after, the companies you want to get into. And that's all it really is. It's just levers that you're pulling in order to help you increase your opportunities. Mm. And one of the things you say is before going to an interview, do your homework. That's super important. Can you speak to that? Yes. So 
most job seekers, and I used to do this. So, and my clients, I know they used to do this as well, is you wait until you get the interview to prepare for the interview. So let's just say I get a call today on Monday and they ask me to come in for an interview this week. Maybe I don't want to get the Friday slot, so I'll pick the Thursday slot. So now I have Monday through Thursday up until my interview time to prepare for this interview. Maybe job seekers will look at the job posting again. Uh, Maybe they'll look at the company website. Maybe they'll look at the person that's interviewing them on LinkedIn. And that's about it. Maybe they try to look at the mission statement, but that's where the research ends versus my clients where I have them prepare for interviews before they even have an interview lined up. So they spend about two to three weeks perfecting their interviewing skills. Um, They're able to take control of the interview. They know how to uncover any challenges or obstacles that may be preventing them from moving from next steps or getting the job offer. They identify what are the top three skills are hardest to hire for in this role They sometimes are able to connect with someone or network with someone within the company that gives them a lot of company insights. They look at, they have a target list of companies that they want to go after and they review earnings calls, financial reports. So they have a lot of wealth of information. Then they apply and they get the interview. Now they don't have to, I mean, there's, you cannot squeeze that all within four days, especially if you're working and you have a life and you have family and responsibilities. It's hard to squeeze that in all in four days. But my clients are already spent two, three weeks beforehand working on these things. So when the interview comes, they're more than prepped and ready. All they have to do really is probably research the interviewer, but they already know what questions they want to ask. They already, and it's not, you know, tell me about your culture or what is your management style? Because no one's going to be honest and say, well, I'm a micromanager and culture here is horrible. We're going to expect you to work weekends and, you know, you're not going to have a life after this. So you really have to do your due diligence and ask really great questions that, again, will help you set up and make you stand out from the competition where no other candidate can even come close to the level of how you're interviewing because they only prepped in four days versus you prepped within two to three weeks. You mentioned for you to take control of the interview. I don't think a lot of people would think that's their job in an interview. Can you speak to what you mean by being able to take control of the interview? In a perfect world, it shouldn't be your job. (laughs) (laughs) That's not always the case. Sometimes a person that's interviewing you might be the first time they're interviewing someone. Maybe they never received management training. Um, They're not, they're not sure. Maybe they're an introvert. And again, They're going to be your hiring manager. This is their first time hiring for this position. And they just don't know what to do. And if they don't ask you the right questions, you could be walking away from an opportunity where you would have been a great fit for, but because they didn't ask you the right questions, you lost on that opportunity, not them. Mm -hmm. So we cannot rely on our interviewer to make sure that they ask us the right questions to put us in the best light and show us and highlight our skill sets. So for example, sometimes, and you hope that they ask you, like, why are you a good fit for this role? Well, that's the perfect time to really sell yourself on why you're the perfect fit. But if they don't ask you that question, how are they going to know why you're better than everyone else, better than all the other candidates? Or the other situation I've seen is, oh, the interviewer already knows me. We used to work on a project together. Well, that still doesn't guarantee you the job. And two, They might not even ask you questions. Tell me about yourself because they assume they know you. They might just say, hey, Dana, how's it going? Yeah. So, you know, I I know we worked on this project, but yeah, like 
why are you interested in this role? Oh, I thought it was a really good role. You know, it would really move up my career. Okay, great. Well, I'll make sure to keep you posted. And the interview ends and not realizing that they they think they know you, but they only know Dana on that one project they worked on. They don't know Dana's entire professional experience, all the expertise that you have, all the achievements, the accolades, why your background is such a perfect fit for this role and why we're able to leverage it in order to make you a really great um, candidate for this position. You lost out on that opportunity because you had a bad manager that didn't know how to ask you the right questions. So that's why it's Mm -hmm. important for you to know how to take control of the interview. And sometimes the interviewer will love it if the jobs or the candidate takes control of the interview because they're like, great, I'm just going to sit back and watch them shine. And when I have questions, it's all about questions about your accomplishment, which is what you want. You don't want them you know, kind of dissecting all your bad, you know, failures and your bad experiences. Instead, you want them dissecting all your achievements and putting you in a good light. Um, And then that's when they can say, well, Dana was the perfect candidate. She had these accolades, achievements. I can see why she's the perfect person for this role. And she brought on some really great questions and intel. And she has all these three skills that we know have been really hard for us to hire for. She's our number one candidate. She's who we want for this role. Versus a person that didn't take control and was hoping they asked the right questions, but they didn't. Right. You have to help connect the dots mm-hmm. or how, how they're a fit. Yeah, I love that. It's That's such an important one. I like that a lot. Yeah. And again, um, it's a business principle. Like when you're buying a house, you don't want your realtor to just say like, all right, let me just show you some houses. And you're like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa what's going on? Why are you showing me houses that are out of my price range? or neighborhoods I don't want, or our styles that I don't want. Maybe I want a ranch house because I don't want to go up the stairs. I have bad knees. But you're showing me three, four-story <laughs> homes or apartments. Again, you want to take control from the beginning so that way it dictates the experience afterwards. That's a business principle, but you're using it in your career and specifically through your interviewing skills. Mm, I like that. You said one of the things that you noticed uh, about people – um, is that they can be so focused on their job that they don't really have time or training to work on building their career. And there's a difference. Can you speak to that? Yes. So when it comes, and, and like I said, a lot of these things I used to do um, before and what, and I've seen it from clients. I worked with a lot of clients. My clients are women in senior leadership roles and they're women in tech. So usually managers and directors and they've come to realize that one, they either don't like the industry or they don't really like their jobs. And they started at their company. They probably got an internship or a job right out of college. They've been working at this company. They've been trying to get promoted. But then they finally realize that, why am I trying to get promoted at a company I don't like? Or maybe why am I trying to get promoted or move on in a company that I don't even enjoy at all? Or this is not something that really fulfills me. I'm bored all the time or I'm feeling frustrated. I procrastinate at work. I just, I'm not fully there. And then they realize that their counterparts maybe are moving a lot faster in their career than they are. They're a manager director, but some of their peers are already senior directors or executive positions. How come they're in those positions and they're not? And that's the question they ask themselves. But when I dissect and look at their, you know, what have they done to get there? They re- they have no plan. They're like, well, I just try to do my best and sometimes I get passed up for promotions. So I try even harder and 
you know, until I'm able to be offered that opportunity versus the person that says, I've acquired everything that I need to know at this position at this level. I'm ready for the next step. If my company doesn't offer me that career trajectory for whatever reason, I will go elsewhere and continue moving up my career ladder to make sure I attain this goal by this X time based on what I've seen in my research. And that is a difference between someone that moves ahead in their career, optimizes their earnings, um, and gets to the high level. And not everyone wants to be an executive. So I'm not always saying right. a CEO or anything, but like a senior director or whatever you achieve to be, there's a difference between planning and getting there and optimizing it versus just you know, putting your head down, doing your work, and then hoping they promote you because hope is not a strategy. And my philosophy is if they don't promote you, you go ahead and promote yourself. Go elsewhere. Go to another company and seek that promotion and get it and continue moving up your career ladder. Mm. I like that. So, there, yeah, there's a big difference between a job and a career. And it's, it is about being strategic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everyone, business principle, everyone asks you of a business plan before you get started. So that way you can know whether you're in the right path or not. And right. then... That's the same thing you want to do with your career. Is this something fulfilling? What is it that you enjoy and dislike about your current job? Because at times I've had clients where they'll say, you know, I absolutely can't stand this job. I hate it. I'm miserable. I want a new job. But a new job may still bring that misery to you. So it's all about identifying what is it that you enjoy? What allows you to thrive? And what things don't you not enjoy for whatever reason? And it's just not our strength to make sure that the next job you go into, you're not finding yourself in the same position, just at a different company. name. How do you help people land their fulfilling roles if they don't know what they want? Sometimes people are, are more clear, but people may be in a job and they go, this is not it, but they're not really sure what they should jump to. Are there some techniques or ideas that you can share of how to get people tuned into what they really want in a, in a fulfilling role? Well, with my clients, I use like a two-part approach. One is identifying what you don't want or don't like. Sometimes it's easier to say, well, I don't know what I want, but I can tell you what I don't want. And that's mm-hmm. a good start. We want to identify what we don't want. Um, and then once we have an idea of what we don't want, then it helps us start becoming, it filters out the opportunities out there. And once we have an idea of that and making sure we go after the right filters, then it's about contacting people. So for example, you know, I have my clients network with people where they'll say, you know, I'm exploring these op- these two different types of opportunities. They're vastly different, but they both pay with what I want. They both have the same lifestyle that I want to go after, especially in the next five to 10 years. But I'm still not sure if one is better than the other one. Um, then that's when I have them reach out p- to people in those roles and ask them, you know, Dana, I can see that Um, you're a director of software engineering. Can you tell me a little bit more about the role or, you know, what surprised, what would surprise most people about this role? Maybe, you know, that you absolutely hate public speaking. (laughs) And then you ask this person and then you find out that most of the job requires public speaking. Well, that's out of the table. Let's remove that. Let's go after this other job that we also had. And let's, Let's ask these questions to make sure that the things we don't want are not part of that job. And especially at an 80, 90%, there's always going to be things that you're not going to enjoy within a job that you just have to do. But there's a difference mm-hmm. between, I really hate doing this, but at least I'm only doing it 10% of my job 
versus I hate doing this, but it's 90% of my job. So knowing that you're going to be miserable for that 90%. So it's really understanding the job itself. And again, you cannot go based on job postings because they're so different. And if Mm. I ask any person right now, like, are you really doing what your job posting said you were going to do? You might see that it's vastly different or it just has evolved and grown over these past few months or years, how long, however long you've been in that role itself. So you want to base it off on people actually doing the job versus a job posting. Um, I'm curious if someone is in a job and they actually like the role, they like the organization, but they like to get promoted faster. They, you know, they, they're looking for more pay, more responsibility. Um, what kind of advice? I mean, obviously there's a strategy to get there, but what kind of advice do you give your clients of how, how do you get promoted faster? How do you speed it up in the organization that you're already in? Well, one, you want to um, reach out to people who have been in that upcoming role. So let's just say you are a manager and you want to move up to director. You reach out to senior director. You want to move two levels above what you're interested in. And you want to ask the senior director, you know, what are the hardest skills to hire for in a manager or in a director position? Then you ask enough people, you'll start seeing a trend. Oh, yeah, you know, of course they should be great leaders. Of course they should know how to manage a team. But what's really hard to find is someone that can do X, Y, and Z. So now you already know what are the hardest skills to hire for in that director position right from the source, right from the person that's going to make a decision whether this person should get the director job, yes or no. Once you have that and you're looking to improve, you also want to make sure of, you know, what are some of those um, achievements that or how is success really being measured for a director position? And what you want to do is translate that now into your manager position. So that way, when you go into an interview or you want to get promoted, you can say, look, I've, I've looked at director position. I want to make sure that uh, based on my performance and my achievements, it aligns more closely that of a director position. And then now you're building a case on why you'd be a great fit for the director position. And of course, you want to make sure you have that salary range as well, which is something you can, again, ask that senior director. And it doesn't have to be internally because that'll be a lot harder to do. You can go externally to other companies and say, I know as a senior director, um, you know, I'm interested in a director position, but there's been a wide range of salary ranges when it comes to this position. From your experience, what is a truer salary range and preferably a 10K range that'll be um, more uh, more related to the director position that, I, that I'd be interested in going? And people will not disclose their salary, but they'll disclose how much their employees make or how much they used to make back in the day. So they can say, well, you know what, Dana, back in the day, I used to make as a director this amount of money and I got these perks. Or they might say, you know what, Dana, it was such a long time ago where I was director. Things have changed so much, but I can tell you what my, what we pay our directors. We pay our directors a salary of A and B along with these other um, benefits that come along with it. And that's pretty standard across the industry. And now you have a good perspective of the salary range that you should be asking for along with the other perks that come with it. And since you mentioned salary raise, um, that's often something that people, of course, people are always looking for more money and they, they want to get paid with what they're worth. So can you talk about how do people get paid what they, they're worth? Uh, you know, what are the secrets to negotiating a big pay raise? Well, I always like to, I don't like to say worth because as you know, we're all worth more than our salary, but what sure. I would say is like, let's make sure we get paid 
what the market rate is paying for for these specific skills and positions. And the biggest mistake I've seen job seekers make is they'll say, well, I'm making, and just, just to make things easier, I'm making $100,000. So at my next job, I want to make at least 110 or 115. 120 would be great. And that's how they base off their next salary. And that is the biggest mistake ever. Um, and here's an analogy. If I bought a house for $100,000, or let's just say, Dana, you bought a house for $100,000. And now the market is willing to pay you $300,000 for that same house. Are you really going to say, Claude, I can't sell it to you for $300,000. I only paid a hundred. How about I sell it to you for one hundred fifteen, or maybe one hundred twenty thousand? It's too much to ask for three hundred thousand. There's no way you would ever do that. You would say, "Yes, I'll take the three hundred thousand. Great," because that's what the market is offering. And you're looking to sell. A buyer's looking to buy, and it came. The market rate is at three hundred thousand. Same thing with your salary. Doesn't matter how much you're making now or how much you started off making that job. If this job is willing to pay you twice as much as what you're making, then that's what you ask for. It's not what you're currently making. And I've had clients double their salary. I had one client, um, she was making 180 and just got a job and landed making $320,000. Wow. That was a $140,000 salary increase. Now she got a sticker shock because she couldn't believe that that's how much this job was paying. But we worked really hard on that because mindset is really going to dictate how comfortable you are with that. And once she came to realize this, one, she was being grossly underpaid. That's why it looks like a big jump. Had she been a white male or something, it wouldn't have been that big of a jump because it would have been during market rates. Usually, as we know, women, um, we get paid around 72 cents on the dollar. And I think it used to be 82 cents on the dollar, but since COVID, it decreased. So we're getting paid less. Um, we're, we're moving. We're falling behind as opposed to getting better. So. Sometimes there will be a sticker shock, but one is probably because you've been grossly underpaid. And two, now there's a demand for these types of positions. And again, you want to ask for the salary that the market is willing to pay, not much how much you've been making and how much more you want to make. So there might be a huge discrepancy, especially if you're a woman. You mentioned mindset uh, because some people may not be comfortable asking. You're right. They might say 100 and they just go up a little bit the next time. And it may not be what the market is willing to pay. So what role does mindset play in, you know, finding a job or even asking uh, for the money that 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 job is it should be paying? So what role does that play? Well, that's right where fear stems from. It's from your mindset. So some might even just listen to this podcast. There's no way I could ask double for my salary. You must be, you must be thinking I'm out of my mind. Like there's no way I could even ask for that. There's no way I could get that. I don't even think my job pays that much. I would need to go back to school. Maybe if I got a, a, a master's degree, or maybe I need to get my MBA, or maybe I need to get all these certifications. All of a sudden we're starting to list reasons of what we need to do before or we can ask for that salary, not realizing that that's what you can be getting right now. I had one client that was making 60,000. They just wanted a ladder move because they just wanted to get out of their company. They were not even looking to get promoted and not everyone wants to get promoted. They just wanted to leave a company and preferably a better culture. Same job. Now they're making 90,000. There was no, they didn't even move to senior leadership. They didn't become team lead. It was a lateral move at a different company Went from sixty to ninety thousand. 
again, he, that person did not need to get any certifications. They did not need to get any certifications or degrees or anything whatsoever. They just made a lateral move at a different company and that was it. So mindset is where this, where really fear comes from. Oh, I can't ask for that too much. Maybe I'm not good enough yet. Maybe I need to pay my dues. Maybe I need to stay at my job longer. And it's when you can, can take control of your mindset, that's when you start seeing changes. Instead of thinking that, it could be, I should have been getting paid. I'm leaving $30,000 on the table because I did not negotiate. I need to be asking for this much. My skills are worth this much. And here's a business cases of all the reasons why I'm, you know, my skills or, my, or this position is worth this much in salary. And then that's when you start seeing changes. Um, and one of the things I see people make is, especially when it's a big jump, let's just say you're making a hundred thousand and you get offered one You're like, Oh my God, probably make, jumping around, like super happy. Come to find out that your peers are making one eighty, And all of a sudden you feel upset. Why aren't you not getting paid more? And you know, why is there such a huge discrepancy, especially when you all do the same work? Well, maybe that person negotiated and the company was more than happy to offer that. And the companies usually don't offer you the higher end of the salary range. They usually offer you the lower or the mid range. So making sure that just because it's a good big jump in salary for you doesn't mean that's everything that's out there. You might still be leaving money on the table, um, even if it's like a big jump in your salary. So again, I go based off what is the market paying for this job? And if I want to increase my salary, let's, um, for example, and this is just a ex personal example, um, I was planning a wedding and looking to save up for a house. And we know how expensive that is. Mm. So instead of, you know, I'm a person of abundance where if I want something, instead of cutting back, I'd rather just make more. So I knew I needed another $30,000, $40,000 salary increase. And, you know, I tried to get it within my job. Um, what was it? I tried to get it within my job. And at the time, my boss was like, not everyone's going to be set for you. They were like, no, you know, you need to pay your dues. You know, I was in my job for 10 years before I got promoted. And for me is I do not need to be in 10 years in a job in order for me to get promoted. I'm already been ready for a promotion. I have achievements and accolades to back that up. My manager didn't promote me. So I went and looked elsewhere and got a job and got a $30,000 salary increase. And that helped pay for my wedding and other things that I needed to do. But again, it's all about understanding that if you do have, you know, for whatever reason, personal reasons, you need to make much more than that, then look for jobs that pay that amount of salary and then start figuring out, you know, what skills you have, what are the hardest skills to hire for? Because I've even landed jobs before in the past that I was only 30% qualified, but I knew exactly what they were looking for. I knew their pain points. I knew what the hardest skills were to hire for. And I had those skills and I made a really great business case that I got the job while still getting a 30 K increase. Mm. I, I like that you're a girl who does her research. And I like the <laughs> fact that, and you said, and the other thing you pointed just to mindset, you said, I'm a person of abundance. I, I'd rather not cut back. I'd rather make more. Yeah. And that, that, I think that's such a key piece in landing the job that you want. You have to believe that you can actually do it. And sometimes you will hit walls like you did with your manager. Hey, mm -hmm. I've been in this job for 10 years and didn't get promoted. Why should you? Um, but you just found uh, another solution for it. So um, I, sometimes I think we get in our own little boxes about 
what the market will do or what, uh, and it's just really more about pushing our own boundaries and comfort zone um, when it comes to applying for jobs. And, and when, when I think of that, I think of people who maybe are laid off. And so they, they lose their job, not by choice. They might've loved their job. Wh- what advice can you offer people who've been laid off and trying to find another piece? Because something that I've often seen in people, if it takes a long time to get a job, their confidence starts to wane. They start to feel bad about themselves, like maybe they don't have anything to offer. Um, Can you speak to people who get laid off and any advice for them? Well, I would say that being laid off has nothing to do with you as a person. It just, it's business or what businesses do. So I know that when you get laid off, you're like, well, maybe I wasn't as good as I thought it was. Or there's this stigma around it, like, oh, I got laid off. And people are wondering, well, why did you get laid off? Maybe you were not a high-performing employee. Being laid off has nothing to do with you. And I was actually researching a stat that I wanted to share that on average, Americans, 40% of Americans will get laid off in their career, once in their lifetime. So... Mm. It's common. It's normal. Layoffs happen, whether there's a recession going on or there's a booming economy, there's still going to be layoffs. So don't think because, oh, once we pass this recession, I'll be good. No, you always want to make sure that you take care of yourself. So one is knowing that it has nothing to do with you. It is not your fault. Two, let's learn from this and let's make sure that we never put in this position or how can we mitigate risk so we're ready. So I'm actually doing um, an upcoming workshop on how to how to create or how to survive a recession. And one of the things that I always advise is always be ready. Maybe you got laid off or maybe you didn't get laid off. Maybe your company already did two rounds of layoffs and you're thinking, well, I'm all set. I'm good. I, I, I was able to survive that. Um, I shouldn't have to worry anymore. And that's not the case. I mean, some companies will do three, four rounds of layoffs And some of these layoffs you just don't hear about because it's such a small percentage that they are not considered a layoff and they don't have to publicly announce that either if it falls within a certain percentage. Mm. So what you want to do is always make sure you're always protecting yourself, whether it's a recession or a thriving economy. Um, And it's making a list of your achievements, making sure that your resume is performing, whether or not you're job searching. And if you're like, well, how do I know my resume is performing? Apply to 10 jobs. And if you're not getting two to three interviews, you need help with your resume. And that's the, a great tip. Mm-hmm. And that way, because even if you were to hire a resume writer right now, based on like some of the context that I have, cause I, I used to do resume writing. I don't do that anymore, but I do have companies I refer. They, they right now they have such a backlog because the layoffs that have been happening, everyone wants to have a resume writer. So it could take six to eight weeks for you to get a complete resume that's done well six to eight weeks. Mm. And in order to create a great resume, the candidate itself needs to fill out the application or do an interview portion of, you know, what you've done, what your achievements have been. And if you need time to pull that together, well, then that's delaying more of the time frame. Now you're delaying your job search by two to three months. Hence, had you been ready from the beginning, you can immediately start job searching. As soon as like you hear rumblings or you see the writing on the wall, or you hear the economy is not doing so well, or you get laid off, you can immediately start job searching and know how to get jobs and interviews within days. And again, it comes with preparation and research before you need to do it. And I love that. Yeah. And I would say like, knock on wood, I have yet to have a client get laid off because I have them research companies before they even apply 
to make sure, is this company financially healthy? Do we anticipate doing layoffs? Is there specific markers that tells us whether a company is healthy or not, or gives us enough confidence to say, yes, this person, this company is great. Let me apply. Or you know what? They're just not giving me enough confidence to let me know that I can be happy there and feel comfortable. I'm going to avoid this company for right now. And that was a prime example of one of my past clients that she wanted to go to Peloton, loved Peloton. She was in health and wellness. She's like, I would love to be a Peloton. I had her do this exercise and she said, you know what? I don't, I, I think that Peloton is going to be doing layoffs. They're just not doing so well. A few weeks later, Peloton announced that they laid off over 2000 employees. Again, because we do research from the beginning that we only go after successful, thriving companies. These companies that are not financially healthy don't even make it to that list. Hence, they find really great, fulfilling jobs. And to date, my com- my clients haven't been laid off because of that front work research they do from the beginning. Mm, that's some really great advice. I mean, you're a rock star coach there, Claudia. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's, that's a lot. That really is a lot of really great uh, advice. I love that. Always be ready. It's true. The work is in the preparation and always prepping your resume. Uh, even I even knowing what you have to offer the world, right? I think people get down on themselves and they don't give themselves enough credit um, to knowing that they actually have something to offer the world. And because people, I think, as you said, have a fear, can have a fear mindset. And maybe they get scared that they don't have enough skills or something that... Um, they can offer, but everybody has something to offer the world. Yeah. If they're paying you a salary, you have something to offer in the world. And if you're like, mm-hmm. well, I'm paying, getting paid salary, but I don't know my value, then you need to figure out what that value is. Because the companies do not pay money, just throw out money. They're paying you money for a reason. You need to find that reason where your value comes from and how it fits the bottom line of a company. And if you're like, well, I'm just an expense report item in their books. Well, let's, let's go to the revenue part of it, the profit. Where can you navigate towards that? And that's how you can almost start protecting yourself and your career because if you're an expense line and it's not that bringing that much value, it's easy to get let go of that department, let go of that employee. But if you're bringing a lot of value and, or a lot of revenue, then it's a lot harder to let you that person leave. And that's what you want to start creating. It's moving towards how do you build a recession-proof career? How can you set yourself up for success and how do you mitigate risk? Mm. Well, those are all really great ideas. And you have a freebie uh, for people on negotiating a bigger pay raise. And we'll put all that information in the show notes, but where can they go direct? Is it available on your website? I'll be, I'll be sending you the link so that way your listeners can sign up. But I'll be, um, I'm offering, of course, all your listeners from Soul Sisters Conversations a ten, my $10,000 word-for-word salary negotiation script. So this is a script that my clients have used in the past, and this script alone has helped them increase their salary by at least $10,000. So wow. your listeners can sign up and then get the script for free, and that way um, when they're job searching or having these conversations, they know what to say in order for them to get that salary increase. Right. Well, we'll put that link in the show notes. Is there anything you wanted to say about uh, finding your fulfilling role that I haven't asked you about? Yeah. If you're, I feel like sometimes we are so much into our job and our activities and our responsibilities at home, but a good caveat, a good way to know, do I even have a fulfilling job? One, 
a fulfilling job does exist. <laughs> I know you were like, I have PTSD from working. Like, there's no way it, a fulfilling job does exist. Two, if you feel like you procrastinate, that you obviously you test going to work or um, you these types of things, you just feel like you zone out a lot. It's probably time for you to move on to your next job. And at least the rule of thumb for me is if you're an individual contri- contributor role, excluding sales, but if you're an individual contributor role, you should be in your role for at least two to three years max. If you're a manager, um, it could be between and director, three to five years, senior director and above, it's five to 10 years. That's what's expected for you to be in that role and be able to really um, be able to maximize on those types of positions. So if you've been an individual contributor role for five years, it's time for you to move on, whether it's a ladder move in the different type of responsibilities or to the next promotion. So that's a good way to assess whether you've been falling back in your career or if you're at the right spot. Mm-hmm. Great advice. If people are looking to follow you, check you out, where is the best place for them to do that? They can go to my website at claudiatmiller.com. Again, claudiatmiller.com. And they can also follow me on LinkedIn, I'm Claudia T. Miller, and I provide a lot of um, free career advice. Mm. Well, I'll be looking forward to checking that out in more detail. I really enjoyed our conversation today and I appreciate you giving all sorts of tips and tricks. This was a great conversation. Thanks, Dana. That was such a great conversation. If you loved it too, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please go to iTunes to rate and review this podcast. And if you want to continue the conversation, connect with Soul Sister Conversations on the Facebook and Instagram pages. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Dana Lloyd Leadership, on Twitter at Coach Dana underscore Lloyd, and of course on LinkedIn. See you next week.